Blog Talk Radio. special program commemorating and celebrating the 65th year or anniversary of African Liberation Day 
and the 75th year and anniversary of Palestine in Nakbak Day under the banner of the All African Peoples Revolutionary Party GC. We are honored to be a part of this special program and be the host as we discuss an important theme today, which is God makes no slaves in the womb. Co-host today that will be helping to be the interviewer is Brother Inwalmu Kito, who is an organizer for the All African People's Revolutionary Party GC. And as you know, this radio program, Africa on the Move, is under the banner of the African Awareness Association. So in sponsoring this particular event in honoring African Liberation Day and Palestine Day, I will now bring you Brother Inwalmu Kito, who will take over at this point in time of the program as a representative of AAPRPGC. Brother Inwalmu, welcome to Africa on the Move and Africa Liberation Day, Palestine Day. The mic is yours. Uh, we thank you um, for the All African People's Revolutionary Party, GC. This is also a, a very important uh, day. Uh, we have been as diligent as possible to uh, organize various African Liberation Day uh, programs and activities with uh, various uh, organizations, allies. Uh, this is one of the important, really important, is not to minimize the others, but um, we're working with Pan-African Roots and, and our brother Bob Brown um, to bring some information that we think helps qualify our case for the need for the destruction of, of capitalism and imperialism. Uh, and and in this instance, talking about the role of the Catholic Church in the uh, capture, enslavement, and trafficking of African uh, people worldwide. So that's that's our focus, and we think it's a very important one. Uh, it is a model uh, for those uh, scholars and intellectuals who want to write uh, information and analyses that will advance the struggles of our people. So we think that uh, in this instance, uh, this particular uh, theme and topic that, that Bob has developed uh, points us in that direction. And so um, at this point, we're going to bring him on um, so he can begin to kind of explain who he is and why uh, he chose this direction as another uh, contribution to, to the struggles of our people. So I'm going to turn it over to Bob at this point. Thank you. We want to thank the All African People's Revolutionary Party, GC, and Africa on the Move blog talk radio for inviting us to be a part of this program this evening and giving us the platform, the time, and the space to make our contribution. We want to also thank those people who are listening in to the program. There are a lot of things you could be doing with this time and space, and we are honored, extremely honored, that you have chosen to spend this time with the AAPRPGC, Blog Talk Radio, our audience, and, and Pan-African Roots. Many of you probably know a little bit about who I am. 
unfortunately, most of you know extremely little about what I have done. I have worked, you know, over 60 years. I mean, I celebrate on June 5th, I'll be 75 years old. On October 22nd, I will celebrate 60 years in the movement. Lawrence Landry and the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee, you know, offices and friends in Chicago helped organize a school boycott. A quarter of a million students, you know, stayed out of school. My family, you know, what, 12 or 13 children, you know, at that time in my family, you know, my mother and my father permitted us to boycott school. We didn't march, but we boycotted. And a quarter of a million students stayed out of school, African students stayed out of school in Chicago one day. It represents the date of my entry into the movement. And I have literally worked full-time, you know, low pay and no pay for 60 years in the movement. 1963 was the year of the high school students entering into the movement. If you look at the if you look at the chronology of 1963, you will see in March of 1963 the Charleville massacre, where I think 69 members of the Pan-Africanist Congress of Ozania were massacred in. Sharpville, and in, I think it, the other city was longer and whatnot. Thousands, thousands of high school students were arrested, and many of them wound up spending decades in prisons in, uh, what is that prison in, in, in South Africa and whatnot. For the most part, many of them were high school student members of PAC, including um, Steve Beagle's older brother, a man named Mark Shinners, who was one of the leaders of the high school guerrilla wing of PAC, the, the APLA, I'm sorry, the POCO wing of PAC. He spent 10 years in prison in, in, in the penitentiary, for that round, he was let out of prison in, in the mid-1970s. He is accused or was convicted of helping, being one of the masterminds and organizers behind the Soweto Rebellion of 1776. He was convicted with other PAC members and, and um, BC, a Black Consciousness Movement members, and he spent another 10 years in Robben Island, and he was released right before Mandela was released in the late 1980s, early 1990s, because Mandela correctly said he would not leave prison until and unless all of the political prisoners left. You also saw in April the, the Birmingham campaign with Dr. Martin Luther King in, in Birmingham. Dr. King did an, an arrest policy, jail no bail policy, 
but he underestimated Bull Connor. Bull Connor was a slick old cracker and whatnot. And he understood what Dr. King and the SELC staff estimated how many people it would take to fill the prisons, the traditional prisons, and he filled them. There's no question about it, he filled them. But Bull Connor was slick. He opened up new spaces to imprison people. He imprisoned people in the Greyhound bus station. He imprisoned them on, locked them on, on, on the highways, and, and, and he, he found every crack in every crevice he could in Birmingham to not allow Dr. King and SELC to fill the jails to break the legal political system. But a man named James Bevel and his wife, Diane Nash, some of the master organizers and some of the master forces inside of the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee and then later in SNCC, they went into, I think it was four high schools in Birmingham, and they turned them students out, singing and marching with dogs biting them and water hoses, and it was broadcast all over the world on TV and whatnot. Those high school students, if it had not been for them, Martin Luther King would have lost that Birmingham campaign, and you would have never heard his name again in history. The high school students. Shortly after that, the, the Ku Klux Klan and the police in, in, in Birmingham, Alabama, killed, I think it was four young women in a church. They bombed the church and killed them. Them four women were friends of Angela Davis and whatnot. They killed them students in order to make the parents afraid and in order to stop the movement from recruiting high school students into the movement and whatnot. And then, of course, you had the March on Washington several months later. Unfortunately, history does not properly record that 1963 is the year of the high school students. They talk about labor. They talk about preachers. They talk about college students in, in 1960 and different other periods of time, but they've not given us, they've not given us our proper dues and respect. We're going to rewrite history. Are they going to write the history of the high school student movements in 63, who became the college student movement in 67, and the Black Panther Party, who by 1983 in Chicago were helping to elect Harold Washington as the mayor, a more than almost 30-year, almost 30-year struggle to dump the Democratic Party, dump Mayor Daley, and dump Congressman Bill Dawson and the Dawson machine, and I'm still trying to dump the Democratic Party and dump the neo-colonial forces in the United States and throughout the world, and I'm still struggling to try to help build an independent political party. Let's fast forward. In 2001, September of 2001, more than 
actually, 28 August to 1 September 2001, more than 8,000 representatives of 3,000 NGOs from every corner of the world participated in the third World Conference Against Racism. An NGO forum was held the following week. Also, in the, the first meeting was a governmental meeting hosted by the United Nations Commission on Racism, Racial Discrimination, Xenophobia, and Related Intolerance. And an NGO meeting was held with thousands of NGO people were held the next, the following week, and, were, and I had the honor and the privilege to be in attendance, the non-governmental meeting. I refused to go to the governmental meeting because I knew it had already been sold out. They passed, the governmental sources passed a declaration called the Durban Declaration and Program of Action a 200-plus page document. Paragraph 13 of that document had a, a phrase or a clause, a part of a sentence. I'll, I'll read that part of the sentence which most troubled and concerned me. It said that the, 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 the governmental conference acknowledged, quote, that slavery and the slave trade are a crime against humanity and, let me underline, should have always been so, especially the transatlantic slave trade. That paragraph has been misinterpreted accidentally and or deliberately with different forces saying that the governmental session of WACOB Acknowledge that the slave trade and slavery were a crime against you. Well, they are a crime against humanity today, especially since the tribunals that were held in Germany in the wake of the massacre and, and, and genocide against, you know, Jewish people and other, other forces who were, who were murdered and imprisoned and put in concentration camps by Hitler, they have most certainly, these issues have most certainly, you know, been declared a crime against humanity since that. Apartheid was declared a crime against humanity in the 70s, I, I believe it was. So, yes. It is slavery and the slave trade are crimes against humanity and crimes of war and crimes against peace and, and other types of crimes today since the 1940s. But the sentence says should have always been so, which implies that at some point in history, slavery and the slave trade the so-called transatlantic slave trade, was legal. I disagreed with that decision 22 years ago, and I continue to disagree with that decision today. Stop me while I'm on, when I go over. Let me shotgun some dates. I came back to Chicago. I re-entered the United States 
I, I think I was on the last or one of the last planes that was allowed to land in the United States after 9-1-1. Made my way back to Chicago. In 2002, Dorothy Tillman helped pass a resolution with a deal she cut with Massa Daly to pass legislation that was called the uh, Slavery Era Records Disclosure Movement. It was a legislation that was copied from Tom Hayden's insurance legislation out in California dealing with demanding the disclosure of Holocaust records and demanding that the various, you know, the stuff that was stolen and compromised, you know, the artwork, the monies, the this and that, the other, that was stolen by the Nazi Party and, and, and Hitler's, you know, fascist, you know, reactionary, genocidal movement, demanding that that money be repaid. So Dorothy took this legislation from Tom Hayden in California and translated it into the um, Slavery Era Records Disclosure Ordinance in Chicago, the first of of a total of 10 ordinances passed in nine cities in one county, you know, uh, Philadelphia, Detroit, Wayne County, Milwaukee, Chicago, Los Angeles, San Francisco, Richmond, Berkeley, and Oakland. They passed similar laws. The laws basically said that any entity that did business with that city or county must disclose any and all of their slavery era records. That law and the movement to to enforce that law became part of what is known as the records disclosure and discovery movement. You have open records laws in every in every state in every major city in this country, demanding that governmental records be opened and disclosed. You have Freedom of Information Act laws. You have whistleblower laws that said crimes and other kinds of things that are being committed and information is being withheld must and should be disclosed. They also have open meeting laws and whatnot. So since 2003, I have been working with in a broad sense, what is called the open records or the records disclosure movement worldwide. Different countries, different states and provinces, different municipalities all over the world have different and, 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 and some good, some bad records disclosure laws. The European Parliament a few years ago passed a slavery era records disclosure movement. So I am part of, and I have been working with for over two decades, the records disclosure movement in general and the slavery era records movement in particular. I'm not a part of the reparations movement. I don't ask for reparations, and I don't conflict 
with any individuals or any movements who make demands for apologies, demands for reparations. I want and I'm fighting for the slavery and the slave trade and the colonial and the neo-colonial and all the records of corruption, you know, and, 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 and exploitation and oppression be disclosed. The movement has had a lot of tremendous successes, and let me shotgun a few contributions that I helped make it. In 2002, I unleashed an avalanche of FOIA requests on every agency and department in the city of Chicago demanding the release of all the slavery era records of every vendor that does business with the city of Chicago. If my memory is correct, there are more than 6,000 vendors doing more than $3 trillion worth of business every year. I demanded FOIA requests from all of them, especially to determine if they were in compliance with the Tillman Slavery Era Records Ordinance. I just got some of those records about three months ago. The city of Chicago, four or five mayors, including Lloyd Lightfoot, who was the lawyer. Well, let me let me do it. Let me. I'm jumping ahead. 2004, I did the first lawsuit, arguing in the federal court that the the, the, the ordinance was not being implemented. At that time, there were several other lawsuits in 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 federal court, including a, a lawsuit with a. Uh, Deidre Farmer Pullman, who did the lawsuit against Aetna and J.P. Morgan. Those lawsuits were thrown out, so I voluntarily withdrew my lawsuit to preserve it. I filed the lawsuit pro se because I, I know movement lawyers like you've never known movement lawyers, but I could not get any of them to go into court with me. I understand it, because while I may or may not be accused of a frivolous lawsuit, they could not go into court with what the court would consider to be a frivolous lawsuit. They would lose too much, including the possibility of losing their entire legal practice. So I had no problem. You know, I got the emails that I sent to every one of them, and Deidre asked me, or I asked her opinion, should I release that information? And she told me, no, don't do that, Bob. There's this illusion in, democ- in ultra-democracy that says you can't sue lawyers. You can't cuss out your own lawyer. Well, Trump, as bad as he is, he's... he's Trump's lawyers are fighting each other for days and fighting government lawyers. So that myth is gone. We recently published, I filed a second lawsuit. This lawsuit was against, first lawsuit was against 102 defendants, 
corporate, governmental, including the Archdiocese of Chicago. I filed a second lawsuit because at that point in time, Chicago was trying to get the Olympic bid for 2016. And the Olympic Committee required the city of Chicago to to do COINTELPRO-like investigations and operations throughout the city of Chicago. And anybody who threatened the Olympic game in Chicago seven, seven or eight years later was spied on and investigated. So I sued with respect to human rights violations and COINTELPRO-like operations committed against me by the police, the FBI, the, the Olympic Committee, I mean, every agency, every government in the world that got an Olympic Committee. I emailed the president of the country, the king and the queen, pope of the Catholic Church, and I told all of them that if, if Chicago wins the bid for the Olympic team, they're going to have to give me all of their slavery era records and files. I helped make sure the Olympic did not come to Chicago. They sold me out. And the woman who was, there were 15 law firms against me, and I was pro se until oral arguments. And Attorney Lionel Jean-Baptiste and one of the white members of the, the, the city council in Evanston, Ed Moran, they came and did oral arguments on my behalf. The lead attorney for the defendants was Lawyer Lightfoot, the sister who just lost the reelection for the mayor in Chicago. She was hired, and her job was to kick my ass to make me look dumber than I am, to defeat me in oral arguments. And truthfully, she would have defeated me in oral arguments because I am not a lawyer. I am a victim of the law and of lawyers and whatnot. So long story short, Ed Moran came under, under Lionel's supervision and did oral arguments for me. You had an African representing the, the successors of the slavery era industry and corporations who committed crimes against us and did not refute, did not disclose the file. I mean, the, 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 the Archdiocese of Chicago even lied on, on $365 million worth of contracts that they had nothing to do with slavery and they had nothing, they had no predecessor entities. That is why I'm still fighting the Archdiocese of Chicago and the Pope 20 years. We, 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 that was the lawsuits then. They were pro se again. The first lawsuit was a whistleblower and slavery discourse ordinance lawsuit demanding the disclosure of the records as usual. 
but also using the whistleblower law to say if you commit crimes, you know, against the government, you will have to pay fines and, you know, restore the money stolen, and you may be chosen, you may have to do triple damages. That's basically the whistleblower law, which the federal law was created by Abraham Lincoln during the Civil War to to fight the industries that were ripping off the Union Army. You had the meat companies selling rancid barrels of meat. You had the, you know, Swift and Armour and all those meat companies, that many of which continue to exist today. And you had the munitions makers selling weapons to, to, to the U.S., to the Union Army in Illinois that would blow up in the soldier's face. So that is where the federal whistleblower law, well, the, the struggle forced the city of Chicago to do a local, that was part of our struggle, you know, just many different forms and many different activities, different organizations and different individuals were a part of, some of which I supported and did the best I could. That whistle, those two lawsuits between 2006 and 2009 <coughs> have recently been published as my second book, two, two volumes, which is basically not all of the records, some of the records which were produced as part of those two lawsuits. I did not disclose all of them for two reasons. One, it was too many, and we already had a two-volume book, almost seven or 800 pages. Secondly, I didn't want to violate any um, intellectual property copyright laws, like I didn't print none of the documents which Lloyd Lightfoot wrote, and she wrote many of them, and she got paid, or she got paid. I did not get paid. I was living in D.C. at that point in time. I filed a case in Chicago, and every time I was called and had to appear in court, I took a 17-hour one-way bus ride, you know, into Chicago. I left the bus station, went to the courthouse. When the court hearing was over, I went back to the bus station and did a 17-hour ride back to Washington, D.C., and I paid the bills. And a small for everything related to outside of that lawsuit. And a small, small, small group of supporters and family and party members helped. Since then, I've done massive FOIA requests, local, national, and international. And I'm just now, 20 years later, getting some of those documents. I traveled all over the world. 
I spoke at the Houses of Parliaments. I, I, I went to meetings in Geneva and Austria and other places, you know, um, at the United Nations. You know, I, I, I did emails with, with every country and every Olympic organization telling them basically, if you vote for that, give Chicago the Olympic, you're going to have to give me and your slavery era records. I lobbied all over Brazil, including directly to Pele. He never he never contacted me, and I really didn't expect or want him to do it. But I helped Brazil get the games. And it delayed Chicago's urban renewal plan. They were daily was going to use the, the games to, to intensify gentrification and corruption in real estate and the sports industry and whatnot. Well, they didn't have a 2016 game, and, and Chicago's Daily's Urban Renewal Program was delayed. It's now in full force like you have never seen in Chicago. The corruption is filthy. And some of the filth is hiding under the lie that they are fighting for reparations for the people. The people will never see that corruption and filth. And you don't want me. I've done all this research on 500 years ago. You bet I can do even better research for today. Long story short, we have been working. We have a project which we've been working on for the last two or three years. Basically, it's, it's, it's information and it's action. Osagifo Kwame Nkrumah says that thought without action is empty and action without thought is blind. So rather than be redundant, and we've talked probably too long already, We'll stop, and then we can. We have several questions, lead questions, and we think that some of the more information can flow up under those questions. Yeah, thanks, Bob. Can I make Bob. it Yeah, thank you. Um, and no, at the time-wise, we we were good, um, and uh, so I didn't interfere. I thought you were covering the areas that you needed to cover, and uh, that kind of puts us in a position where. We'd like you to, to talk a little bit about some of the specific types of information that you have researched and found uh, in terms of the relationship between the Catholic Church and the trafficking and enslavement of African people. Uh, I think 1307, 1888 <coughs> is the time frame, but just in general, what countries, what ports, what dioceses diocese in Europe and the Americas and Asia were kind of involved in this whole uh, process of slavery? Okay, first of all, I have been doing massive research. I have literally downloaded online thousands of e-books, PDF books that you can get for free, and thousands of dissertations and articles and on the so-called slave trade in general, to me, it's not a trade, it's a traffic. 
When you say trade, you say it's legal. When you say traffic, it's illegal. So it, it is massive. I'm drowning. I'm drowning in research on the history. That's number one. Number two, in order to kind of make some sense out of it, I'm using basically three books, three dissertations as my model on how to try to organize this mass of information which will be published in a series of books. First of all, I'm using Dr. W.E.B. Du Bois's dissertation. And in, 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 in 1891, he did a paper at the American Historical Association's meeting. The AHA was founded, incorporated by Congress, I believe, in 1899. And I believe that this was the first annual conference which they had. They continue to exist today. Dr. Du Bois was at that moment in time a, 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 a doctoral student at Harvard University. He delivered a paper at the AHA meeting in, 19, I'm sorry, in 1881. Uh, hold on, let me pull it up right quick to make sure I got the title right. That that paper was called The Enforcement of the Slave Trade. Ten-page paper that he delivered to the American Historical Association. Basically, he talked about the slave trade to the United States. From the 1600s, what is, what, uh, from... Six to sixteen hundreds to eighteen the eighteen eighties, eighteen sixty seven, eighteen eighties. And he documented the story that that paper called The Enforcement of the Slave Trade, eighteen ninety one, became his dissertation and published in eighteen ninety six, ninety seven. That paper published in that dissertation published, he became the first African in the United States to get a Ph.D. He also became the first historian who researched the so-called slave trade, the trafficking in human beings to the United States. He specialized on the struggle to suppress it, to make it to two or three hundred year struggle to make it illegal. He used legislative history and, and documents, you know, national legislation, state legislation, colonial legislation, international legislation to show from the moment the British traffic in human beings brought us to this hemisphere, some say 1619, up to at least 1867, when they say the last trafficking voyage, 
Clotilla, I think is the name, if, if my memory is correct, that rolled into Alabama. Unfortunately, Du Bois makes the same mistake that the masses of African people and the so-called intellectuals, I mean, Carter G. Woodson was correct when he talked about the miseducation of the Negroes. The first Africans did not come in this country in 1619 in Jamestown. That is at best some of the first Africans that were brought into this country via the British trafficking in human beings. The first Africans brought into this territory, which is today called the United States, was 1513 in St. Augustine, Florida when Africans were trafficked from Havana, Cuba, into Florida to create the Spanish colony called Florida, which became a legal part of the United States in 1820. So people used that slick trick colonial BS in order to deny the Africans, I mean, it's anti-Spanish, it's xenophobic, it's, it's racist because you, you're denying Africans who were enslaved by the Spaniards in Spain and in Cuba. Another group of Africans came into this country in the 1620s with the, with the conquistadors and the explorers who, who rolled into Mexico exploring. And some of them came with, with, with the conquistadors and the Spaniards who massacred the Aztecs, committed genocide against them, and, in, and enslaved Mexico, what, what then was Aztec and Inca territory in Mexico and Peru and other places and whatnot. And those two countries became New Spain. Arguably, the first Africans under the French a young a young boy was trafficked into Quebec in 1628, and within and and, and Florida, I mean Louisiana wasn't too far behind. It was called New France, from Halifax, Nova Scotia to New Orleans, and Africans were trafficked into New Orleans via Cuba and other places. Africans were also trafficked into Chicago via Durango and Mexico and, you know, the, the places that had been colonized and settled. And it is the Catholic Church in those dioceses, in those countries, in Cuba, in Mexico and whatnot, who helped traffic the Africans into the United States and especially into Chicago. So as part of my lawsuit in 2006, I did the genealogical study of the Archdiocese of Chicago. I chased, traced the four genealogical streams, one British, two Spanish, one French, into Chicago with the slave trade. And I exposed the lie that they had no predecessors. My family has been working on our genealogy. My sister and a couple of my nieces are working with her. My mother gave me a book 
that she had had. I don't know how long she had it, but the book was published by the the African Methodist Church and the White Methodist Church and Publishing House in Nashville. The book was published in 1948, the year I was born. It was a it was a biography of one of my father's uncles. Yeah, one of his uncles. And that book documents that the maternal side of my father's family, the old man, Jack Marion, it was his name, he was born in 1776, no, no, 1766 in Charleston, South Carolina. His slave master was a man named Francis Marion, who is known as the Swamp Fox. He was the general in the guerrilla warfare by the South Carolina against the British government. So we've been here before there was the United States. He drove wagon trains of cotton to Memphis, Tennessee, before it was even called Memphis, Tennessee. It was called Chickasaw Bluff and whatnot. So he goes back that far in terms of 1766. Jack Marion and Henry Lawrence and the big slave masters in South Carolina were French Huguenots. They were chased, millions of them were chased from France by the king and the Catholic Church. And they settled all over the world, including all over the United States. And many of the people that we think are British are really French Huguenot, like John Jay, Roosevelt. You know, wasn't one of them, that whole Roosevelt crew up there, we think they Dutch, but some of them are French Huguenots. Jack Marion's family came into this country before 1700, maybe around 1685, sometime between 1685 and 1700. He was born on, Jack Marion had more than 200 slaves, people enslaved. Henry Lawrence is accused of having more than 1,000. So my history goes back to that, enslavement and entrapment. Somewhere after the 1800s, Jack Marion was shipped to Mississippi. He spent 97 years enslaved in this country to French Huguenot descendant families in Charleston, his slave master in Oxford, Mississippi, was Scots-Irish. And the day that abolition came to Oxford, Mississippi, which is the headquarters of Ole Miss, the University of Mississippi, and he was born within a couple hundred feet of the Illinois Central Railroad in Mississippi. So we've opened up, you know, with, with my family's help, opened up a whole new aspect of slavery era records because one of the difficulties to get reparations 
is people cannot prove their ancestry before 1863. I mean, one, that they weren't enslaved themselves, although this is slave-like conditions we continue to live under, but they can't get standing in court because they can't prove direct connections to somebody who was enslaved. Here is 97 years of enslavement of one old man. From 1766, he died in 1890. You understand what I'm saying? So it's, it's so much, so much. Unfortunately, one of the newer reparations movement, Adolf something, they, which is a, which is a legal trick that they have succumbed to. They want to get very precise on this class of people who allegedly are qualified for and demand and can sue for reparations. So the way they limit the number of people who might get a check which don't make no sense to me. But leave that aside. They demand proof that your family was enslaved before 1863, which leaves out, a, which leaves out hundreds of thousands of people who therefore are not qualified to receive a check because they can't prove their ancestry. Or they migrated to this country after 1863. I mean, Michelle might can get a check, but Barack Obama can't. And he lies as usual, saying there was no slavery in Kenya. He's a liar. We can document the enslavement of African people in East Africa by the British and by other forces, and we can document the slave-like practices and conditions which continue to exist in Kenya and East Africa today. So that is just part of the confusion and whatnot, okay? So we up to the day? Okay. Um, we, we are doing two things. We are writing a book. Let me, let me short. How are we coming with time? Oh, we okay. We okay. Go ahead and Okay. We are writing our third book. We had the first book, 2004, is a compilation of FOIA requests, state, national, and international. And when it was published, it's it's kind of out of out of publication, but Amazon Kindle got it. That book was titled "We Demand the Full Disclosure and Digitization of All Slavery Era Records." That's 2004, and that's just basically a compilation of FOIA requests, which includes the information that we are demanding be disclosed. When people say they don't know the names of the, of, of, of the people who enslaved us, 
That's a lie. We might not know all of them, but we know at least the name of 21,000 owners of slave ships, slave voyages. It's on the Rice University website. We know the names of hundreds, if not thousands, of people in Washington, D.C. It's 1862. Africans in D.C. were so-called emancipated in 1862-1863. And the U.S. government compensated many, if not all, of the slave masters. So there's some kind of a name. I mean, you, you, you had to prove how many people you were demanding compensation for. So you gave some kind of information on the Africans who you enslaved in D.C. And D.C. goes back much further than 1619, much further in terms of the history, the so-called slavery era in what is now technically D.C. And when those records exist, done in Bradstreet, it's a smoking gun. Every metropolitan area, every state and part of the federal government demands any and all of its vendors who get money, you know, from those government entities, they must have a D&B number, a Dunn and Bradstreet number. I forget his name right quick. He, he was the financer of the abol- of the the abolitionist movement. He, he paid some of the bills for the Underground Railroad. He was also a credit. He controlled one of the two credit agencies from at least the 1830s forward. One based in New York. The other one based with the Germans in Cincinnati. The man in, in Cincinnati married the old man in New York's daughter. They had credit reports. They hired Abraham Lincoln. They hired General Grant. They had all kind of people doing those credit reports in every county and every major city in the United States. There is more than one million credit reports at the Harvard Business School Library. And you can't get access to those credit reports unless they give you access. I sued Don and Bradstreet in 2006 trying to force access to those credit reports. The economic reports, I mean, they even got people's sexual preferences. I mean, they, they, they got all kind of information. And Abraham Lincoln and General Grant and other people collected in Illinois because they were credit reporters, Lincoln especially in southern Illinois. That database is, the smoke, is one of the smoking guns. It's one of them. What company, what entity 
in Mount Bayou, Mississippi, in 1840 or 1850, needed a credit report that didn't have a connection to the enslavement of African people. What slave ship, what textile company in New York City, what sugar, what, 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 what factory that makes sugar, what entity that needs money to buy land, to build property, to, to buy equipment, to buy and enslave African people, they needed a credit report. And those credit reports are at Harvard Business School Library. And we must force, we must force Dun and Bradstreet to open them. We're getting to it. The, the Catholic Church started the slave trade. It started the slave trade in 1307, not no 1444 or 1619. And we'll, we'll do some of that on this program, expose some of that, because that's the open letter we're sending to the Pope and the various documents that research that back those letters up. In one time, there is a priest in Oweri, Nigeria, named Reverend Father Ariele, Pius Oyemenchi Oyewo. He's part of the Episcopal Diocese of Oweri. Oweri was the third capital of Biafra before the Biafra Civil War was crushed. One of my African godfathers, Nicholas D. U. Anyewu, was one of the sons of the chief in the Igbo tribe in Oweri. Long story. We got that's another whole personal connection I have through my Nigerian godfather and whatnot. It's a long story and whatnot. Anyway, Reverend Father Adiele. He did his Ph.D. in Germany. He, his dissertation was the Pope, the Catholic Church, and the slave trade. It's a 500-and-some-odd-page dissertation. He was permitted to, to go to the Vatican secret archives. He read some of those archives and one that with respect to the Catholic Church's role in in the slave. He read it. I'm sitting there looking at the document right now. You know, over 500 pages. And you can't you can't imagine how many times I printed that document and cut it up, pasted it into my outline, and then something happened. And I'm sure I still got the document I created, but it's hidden in this massive fucking, excuse my language, research that I got. So I have to print it again. I just printed it again today and whatnot. You know, so that book is excellent. It's excellent with respect to the information that he had access to that documents the role that the Catholic Church played in slavery. From at least 1415, with the capture of and the colonization of Zeta, uh, my, my, my 
foreign language ain't good, so I don't know how to pronounce it. It's spelled C-U-T-A. But truthfully, he doesn't. He didn't have access to information which I got from somebody else that takes the history back to 1307 with the with the the um, destruction of the Knights Templars. And 1317, 1319, with the creation of the Order of Montessa, whose grandmaster is the king of Spain today, the Order of uh, Portuguese Order of Christ, whose grandmaster is is the president of Portugal today. I got the data. I got the stuff. I even know where the nice Templars the good ones and the bad ones exist today in every corner of the world. Prince Henry the Navigator, 80 years or so before Christopher Columbus, Prince Henry the Navigator was the Portuguese version of Christopher Columbus. The conquistadors, the Bandurantes, the people who trafficked it in African people, many of the key slave masters, slave traders or traffickers, they were members of the Order of Montessa, the Portuguese Order of Christ, the, the, the Brazilian Order of Christ, the Congolese Order of Christ, the Supreme Order of Christ, the Order of Aviv, the the, the five or six of the major Catholic churches who were created in the 10 and 1100s and led the fight, the crusade against the Lebanese and the Turks. I mean, they, come on. We just can't keep talking about the Barbary pirates. They were not African. They were white folks born in Turkey who were pirates and could not live legally in Turkey, so they they made their way to Algeria, and they they were in charge of the, the the piracy in the Mediterranean. It's a long history to it, and we need we need to stop this racism and xenophobia. We don't talk about the Portuguese slave trade. The, the Brazilian slave trade, the Russian slave trade, so at least 16 countries in Europe who were part of the slave trade. We call it the transatlantic slave trade. You know, we, 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 we don't talk about the Lebanese trafficking in Africans, the, the Turkish, you know, the, I mean, the Omani. I mean, we need to be cold-blooded. If you talk about transatlantic, then you must also talk about trans-Mediterranean, going back to Carthage and Rome and Greece. In the Third Punic War, when, when, when Rome beat Carthage, 750,000 Carthaginians, who today are Tunisian, 750,000 Tunisians were killed in the Third Punic War. And the last of the surviving 50,000 
was sold by the, the Romans to the Greek island of Delos in one day. Once upon a time, the first book to read and work study in the AAPRP was Du Bois's Africa and the World. And Du Bois mentions that trafficking. So we can at least trace the trafficking in African people because North Africa is a part of Africa. And we need to stop that bullshit too. People, people telling Beyonce she can't do a movie with Cleopatra with colored, you know, misty so colored skin because Cleopatra was allegedly Greek and whatnot. Well, they've documented that Cleopatra's daddy was Greek and Roman and all that, but nobody claims to know what her father, I mean, what her mother's color was. Beyonce going through that confusion against North Africa and whatnot. The first Catholic Church was in North Africa with Jesus Christ and Mary and Joseph, and it's a whole history to the contributions that Africa made to Christianity and to the Catholic Church and to Islam. And some of our most famous and, and, and most accomplished historians, you know, who, who are deceased, they talk about it. We don't cuss them out when they say Egypt used to be black. You know, when they, we, you know, we don't cuss them out. But then we go around here and say, oh, North Africa ain't part, ain't part of Africa, ain't part of the reparations movement, ain't part of, you know, the liberation movement. I mean, it's madness. It's opportunism. It is ignorance. Because until we get it all straight, <clears throat> we ain't get nothing. So there's a whole history going back. And I'm telling you, the documents exist. I just named some of the documents. I haven't seen them, but I know they exist. I know some of the people who have. I mean, I don't know them personally, but like Father Adiele, he's seen them. And he got a dissertation that documents what he saw. So there are records and there are names. Now, we might not have all 12.5 million. We might have mostly first names. But I bet you if Uncle Sam or if Uncle J. Edgar wants to come get us, wants to come get you, a last name, have, not having a last name won't get in the way. He'll find you. Cointelpro will yep. find you. we just lazy. we just Bob, intellectually lazy. And that's not going to get us straight. So what we are doing, shift to the next one, we are doing the research for a series of open letters. 
and documents attached to them with history and detail and facts and whatnot. Each of those chap each of those open letters are a section of the book and the chapter. There's two types of open letters. One is to the historians, academia, you know, so called experts like the American History Association, the, the, the Slave Trade Voyages Database, which is six or seven universities. I mean, what's his name? Henry Louis Gates gave that structure the first quarter of a million dollars to digitize the documents. They took what they call slavery, I mean, on shipping data, Du Bois worked for the most part on legislative history. The Congress and all the state legislatures and some of the cities and counties, when they are arguing and discussing over and debating the passage of legislation or not passing it, like this, like, like this confusion going on in Congress today, somebody is writing this history. The, the Library of Congress, the National Archives, has those documents, which basically are legal, political documents with respect to the passage of laws to suppress the slave trade. That's what Du Bois focused on. He didn't touch slavery, and he says it in his dissertation. He didn't even really talk about the so-called laws and the records where we were enslaved. His particular dissertation focuses on the two, three hundred, the two, three hundred years struggle to suppress the slave trade and the various tactics and strategies and legislation that was utilized. In Appendix A and Appendix B of his book, he lists and does a one or two sentence, paragraph, two paragraphs at best, description of those, that legislation. You know, he calls it a conspectus, you know, and he goes back to the 1600s and whatnot. He does not talk about when and how slavery allegedly became legal. He talks about the laws, especially the federal laws. He doesn't really talk about the treaties. But we're talking about the 1890s. And he only had so much access at the Harvard Library for that set of materials. There's a debate in the slave trade studies. There's, there's, there's an academic movement called slave trade studies. There's an academic movement called Piracy Studies. Piracy Studies Network Worldwide has 7,000 members. It's headquartered at the University of Turkey at Istanbul. And I was the only African, and I do mean African, not just black, in that research study group. And you can't believe the information 
them academicians, them Ph.D. people all over the world, but the majority of them are Turkey because Turkey is the Ottoman Empire. Turkey was the Barbary Pirates. The history of piracy in the Mediterranean goes back before Rome. One of them Caesars was kidnapped by pirates in the Mediterranean in, in before B.C. Sudan and Egypt were the breadbasket of Rome. Over 200,000 people were given bread free every day in Rome because they were families of the elite and or they wanted to stop the rebellions. I mean, it's like Obama and, and, and Biden giving you food stamps. It wasn't the food stamps of Rome at that point in time. But the pirates in the Mediterranean were seizing those ships and threatening the movement of bread from Sudan and Egypt into Rome. The Roman Senate and key people did not do nothing to stop it because those pirates were providing slaves. They were kidnapping and selling all kinds of slaves, white, white, black, you know, Arab, Muslim, Christians, Jewish. They were selling huge trafficking in slavery in the Mediterranean. We, we just talked about the 50,000 who were trafficked from Carthage on the last day of the Third Punic War. So long story short, those pirates, some of those pirates kidnapped Caesar and held him on one of those islands. I got the information, but I'm old and my memory is going real fast and whatnot. But I, I can handle it because I got a computer and whatnot. But he was kidnapped. And, and they held him on an island playing cards. And they wanted to get a ransom. And he told, he, they told him how much they wanted. And he, Caesar was insulted and told them it wasn't enough money. So he told them how much money to ask for. And he told them who to go to and where to go to, to get it and whatnot and what to say to get it. But he told them, you get the money, don't come back. Because if you come back, I'm hanging them on the cross. Crucifixion. He said, I'm crucifying all of you. They dumb, drunk, did not kill him, went and got the money, went to another island, you know, celebrating their victory, Caesar got loose. He made it back to Rome. He compelled the Roman Senate to do the first major law against piracy. He put another Roman in charge of the, of the project and gave him three years to crush piracy in the Mediterranean 
That man crushed piracy in three months in the in in the Mediterranean. But like so much else, it comes back. We even had so-called piracy in Somalia and Nigeria a couple of years ago. Piracy was declared a crime, the enemy of mankind. I forget the Roman words, but it was declared the enemy of mankind during Caesar's time. So, at Rome, Rome, Roman law defines slavery. The four so-called title, Roman titles of enslavement, including that a child in the woman's womb can be enslaved, is enslaved, is owned by the master. That's why the whole, that's where the whole concept of God makes no slaves in the womb. The Romans did it, and different countries and different structures adopted that Roman law. For example, in 565, the Catholic Church had problems implementing celibacy. Many of the, many of the priests, and now they're exposing even today, many of the nuns were not celibate. So one of the popes passed a papal bull saying that the woman and the child should be enslaved. The priest who was guilty of all that, he just had repentance and confession. So here is this problem of celibacy which continues today. The abuse and the molestation of children. I mean, they just announced in Illinois that in the last 40 years, this same Catholic church that I sued over slavery had more than 400 priests who were molesting more than 1,900 people. The Pope just liquidated the diocese somewhere in North Africa or the Middle East where the priests were abusing the nuns today. It's a big fight between those reactionary forces in Africa like Uganda who just did a law, I mean, gay people, LBGT, People can be imprisoned For life can be killed In Uganda today And the Pope Francis And The Archbishop of Canterbury Welby They just left Uganda A couple of Months ago The Catholic Church and the Church of England Is split like you have Never seen Worldwide, 85% of the Catholic of the, of the Church of England have repudiated Archbishop Welby's right to lead them. 
You know what I'm saying? They just backed off because Welby is the one who did the coronation for what's his name? At this point in time, we have lost five connections. Hopefully, we can get them back shortly, Brother Walimu. Okay, yeah, I'm still here, so I'm sure he'll call right back in. You might want to say a little something about the nature of what we have heard so far and why it's important to our people, historically and politically and culturally. Well, I think from the perspective of uh, the African Revolution, again, uh, what I tried to characterize earlier was, you know, we have to make a case for our people that the uh, that the primary enemy that we are confronted with is the system of capitalism and all of its agents. And uh, I think what this research has done if you go back and we think about Marx's uh, quote that religion is the opiate of the people, that that, that statement has some validity, true for Africa, because religion has played a very different role. But in Europe, uh, the church in itself that uh, made Christianity a state religion and it created the Pope and the Catholic Church per se, that it played an integral role. Africa on the move, or you know? Huh? I'm sorry, I couldn't hear you. Saying was that uh, that the Catholic Church played a, a a major role, a primary role, and I think Bob's work documents its role. So when we talk about the transformation of society, when we talk about the uh, eradication of the exploitation of one human being over another, that part of our struggle must be also against the institutions like the church that participated and participate in the uh, the uh, exploitation of our people. Okay, so uh, if we can go to the uh, interlude, uh, and we'll kind of turn it over to Africa on the move, and then we'll uh, make every effort to, to get Bob reconnected so we can move forward. All right, thank you. We'd like to welcome everyone back to Africa on the move. We've been having some technical difficulties that we are out control. What we're going to do right now, we're going to take a station break, and when we come back, hopefully we have Brother Bob back in, and we will continue the discussion. God make no slaves in the womb. This is Africa on the Moon. Oh, oh, oh. 
wearing chains, living in pain. Today is the same, and nothing ever changes. Hung by the news, can't tell the truth, filled with abuse, and everywhere there's danger. How long can this go on? When will the light I see? I know I must be strong to last through my journey. Yeah, to last through my journey. We must decide to get off the ride and stop going through these changes. We must prepare and learn how to care, but soon we'll be there while our lives won't be in danger. And when the light is clear, oh, how beautiful I will be to know. That I've been here and made it through my journey, yeah, and made it through my journey, yeah, 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 made it through my journey, made it through my journey, Pellerino. A bloodline across the waters from Benin to Salvador Bahia. A scar across the face of the earth. Pellerino, the place they brought the Africans, the place where they tried to make them slaves. Pellerino! You can feel the whip, hear the cries, and see the blood in the red clay. The clay that holds the stones together is African. And each stone is a bone from a people called slaves. Pellerino was the place where death came to dwell. His neighbors did not complain, for he was a way out. From the cold, gray, cobblestone streets to the lifeless cathedrals, tall walls of demons called angels, haunted visions of white faces, crucifying Jesus again and again. But in the sacrifice of this blood, of this dance with death, comes life more rich, more pure, more alive, where death spent many lonely nights pacing the floors of his funeral parlor, waiting for someone to die. Pellerino, a French word called the place of torture, became a place of strength, a place where faces of white saints became faces of black gods, where haunted visions and demons became healing visionaries and orishas from the motherland. And Jesus rejoined his kinfolk and was reborn and baptized in the sound of sensual skin turned up to dance, to inspire a fire like the sun pronouncing his presence. Pellerino was the tongue of the flame, licking the eyes of those who have tried to remain blind, shining a light on a spirit that would not be denied. No, the chains did not break the spirit, did not enslave the music of my soul, did not shackle the will of my freedom, did not tarnish the glow of my gold, 
and all the Palominos in Africa, in Europe, in North and South America cannot destroy the majesty of my people, the love of my people, shining like the sun everywhere we go, everywhere we go. light is clear, oh how beautiful I will be, to know that I've been here, and made it through my journey, yeah, and made it through my journey, yeah, 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 yeah. A negative attitude towards Africa. In San Francisco, on African Liberation Day, Brother Walter Rodney, an African historian, noted both the importance of African Liberation Day in terms of our African identity and some of the root causes for our problem of identification. I have met brothers and sisters who say that their mother tongue, quote-unquote, is French, Spanish, Dutch, Portuguese, as well as English, which we speak. And because of this, we have a problem of identification. We do not know whom we are. And that is why this gathering is of great symbolic importance, because it is an act of identification. We are saying that we identify with the African people of the African continent. We are saying that we are an African people. When we make this identification, have no illusions about the fact that this is a very revolutionary initiative. It is a rejection of every other form of identification which the white society has asked us to accept. Let me draw your attention to something which white universities and white libraries practice. And this is a university community. Numerous universities lie around this land. Go into their libraries and check the Library of Congress cards on the Europe or European. You will find all entries listed concerning the continent of Europe. You will also find entries listed about Europeans in East Africa, Europeans in North Africa, Europeans in Asia and Australia. Look under the Chinese you will find entries listed not only for mainland China, but for Malaysia and for the Chinese in, in, the, in North America. But look on the Africa and the Africans. The only entries on the Africans relate to the continent itself. There are no entries on the Africans overseas. There is no such category. Africans who have been raped from the continent mysteriously disappear and become Negroes. We'd like to welcome you back to Africa on the Moon. We're discussing the theme, God Make No Slaves in the Moon. Um, we had Brother Bob back recently. Yeah, I hope he called back in with some technical difficulty. If he's on, uh, can reach out to him, tell him to call back in. We'll be back on. And while we wait for him to call in, um, Brother Wadamu, he was just on the board. Hopefully he'll call back in, and we'll bring him in, and we have Brother Bob back in the board. We'd like to welcome Brother Bob back. Welcome back, Brother Bob and Brother Wadman. Brother Wadman, we'll get the mic back over to you. 
How are we doing yeah, with this respect is... to time, Lalima? Uh, yeah, we, we have okay. time. Uh, we have time. Yeah, yeah, we we're moving forward. Let me try to wrap this up so we can go on to the other questions and whatnot. As, as I was saying before, we we were interrupted. One of the books. We are doing a series of books. One of the books is God Makes No Space in the Womb. It is an open letter to the Pope and the Catholic Church worldwide, and I do mean the Catholic Church worldwide. There are The, the, the so-called transatlantic traffic involved 950 ports across the world. So we're talking about 950 cities which had ports, some of which continue, the city or the port continues to exist today, and some of them have dioceses and parishes and archdioceses, which were founded as part of the so-called slave trade. So we're not just talking about the bulls of trafficking and in colonization and enslavement and piracy. We're also talking about the bulls who erected certain churches, and the church itself enslaved African people and all the members of the church. So that open letter with the accompanying documents, that's one. There were 16 countries in Europe who were part of the so-called transatlantic slave trade, transatlantic traffic. Those 16 countries in Europe, there is information shipping data from each one of those jurisdictions on 36,000-plus slave voyages from 1501 to 1866. Russia under the Tsar even had one or two voyages that were involved in that traffic. The Harvard Emory Rice University database organizes that shipping data. They have 264 variables. Not every voyage has every one of those variables, but they have 264 variables for 36,000 voyages. They organize, you know, there's a port in Europe, at least one to three ports in Africa, and at least one to three, mainly one, in the Americas. Sixteen countries in Europe are organized into seven major countries or, or groups of countries. So you have an open letter to the Catholic Church. We'll also do an open letter to Spain and to the entire Spanish Empire, historically and currently. For example, people talk about a Cuban slave trade. There was no Cuban slave trade. That's 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 wrong. That's 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 ideal. I mean, that's historically inaccurate. Cuba did not exist until 1898. Yeah, we, 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 the independence of Cuba was at the late, late, late 1800s, and it was 
colonized by the United States, occupied by the United States till the early 1900s. So there is no such thing as the Cuban slave trade. There is a Spanish and other countries who trafficked Africans to Cuba. And we need to be very, very precise about that. The Cuban government of Batista was correctly overthrown in, in, in 1959. So technically, the current government of Cuba is not responsible for the trafficking of Africans to Cuba. Now, if they, if they won't accept it, they, you know, they, re, they can repudiate the Spanish colonialism traffic. They can repudiate the corruption and whatnot of Batista. They can repudiate the corruption of the United States historically and currently with embargoes and whatnot. I don't hold the current government of Cuba responsible for no trafficking in human Africans. The struggle to improve the life and improve the stuff since 1959 with, with the crimes that are being committed by the U.S. government against them, you know, we're we going to raise it. According to the law and the, and the church, the Treaty of Tordesillas of 1494 and the papal bulls of decom de Marcation in 1893 and the Treaty of El Cacovas of, I'm sorry, I kept saying 18, but really 1479. You know, so you got 1479, 1493, 1494, treaties and bulls allegedly divided the world, drew a line down the ocean, Atlantic Ocean, said, east of the line, East of the Canary Islands belongs to Portugal. So Portugal had Africa and Asia. And Spain was not allowed, a Spanish-flagged ship was not allowed to dock in Africa and export no trans traffic, no Africans directly from Africa to the Spanish hemisphere because once upon a time Spain owned everything according to the Pope from North America down to South America with the exception of Brazil you know Portugal had east of the Canary Islands east of the land because Canary Islands was part of the trafficking in human beings Canary Islands and Cape Verde and Azores they were some of the first ports that Africans were trafficked from Africa to Spain and Portugal and to the Western Hemisphere. There are, I think, I forget the number off of the top of my head, but there's something, something in the database about 1,000-plus Spanish-flagged ships that allegedly left ports in Africa and disembarked, as they as they say, you know, I mean, disembark like on a, like on a Dutch, you know, pleasure ship. But anyway, disembarked in the America, embarked in Africa, and disembarked 
That's a couple thousand people. That's illegal. If you park your car on the wrong side of the street, you know, and you, and they got a sign saying no parking between this and that, and you park there, you can be given a ticket because it's illegal. Well, hopefully, you know, when when we get all the documentation straight, we will wipe out the entire Spanish slave trade because of these 264 variables, some of them are legal. Like some of the variables are social and demographic and you know, how many women were transported, tra- trafficked on the boats and how many children. And, you know, so the majority of the 264 variables are demographic and social and biological because the people who did the research and gathered the data from the ports the shipping data, they gathered data to serve their research interests. And Du Bois' research was law and legal, the suppression of the slave trade. And that was the main, one of the main areas of research, so-called slave trade studies and, 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 and African studies, from 1891 through the 1930s, 1940s, and whatnot. But then certain forces with the American Historical Association, the, 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 the thrust shifted from law and the legality versus illegality of the slave trade. It shifted to economic. And Eric Williams... And, and, and other forces talked about the economic consequences or, you know, the economic aspect of the research with respect to the slave trade. Many of them were Marxists, and therefore they concentrated on that. You know, it wasn't that, but then later on, the economic shift still continues because you have a new group of people who are nationalists and civil rights and just hustlers, and they're talking about the economics of the so-called slavery. They're not talking about the slave trade. But they're at least pushing the economic research and study and moving forward. But then with no. Herskovitz and uh, sociologists and the anthropologists, they move to cultural and, you know, the language and, the gender, and so that shifted. Most of it was what they call manuscripts and narratives up until 1999. By then, the whole question of quantitative research and data and and, and the launching of computer databases, and they shifted to the, the slave port the slave ship data, which is the basis of the research. So it's shifted to this slave trade database, which is at Harvard and Emory and Rice and two colleges in California and 
a university down in either Barbados or Bermuda. <clears throat> I mean, it's about a half a dozen to a dozen different institutions. And it's a group of young, mostly white historians who are basically taught at Emory, the, the, the history department at Emory University over the last 30 or 40 years, and they are the new generation of people who own and control slave trade studies. They are millionaires of the study of us. They are writing dissertations and documents and articles and, you know, they, they wrote the so-called reports that were supposed to be delivered and written, like in Chicago for the slavery disclosure issue, you know, you had to do a report on your research and your, your slavery connections and whatnot. It's a group called um, History Associates, based in the suburbs of D.C. And it's, it is a, a group of academicians who are experts, experts on history and other types of subjects, but they basically do legal history. If, for example, a a company is being sued for asbestos, and they have to do a paper, they'll do a paper to prove that the current company does not have liability for the asbestos. Or they'll do. Their job is to make the company look great. For years, they helped say that cigarettes didn't make cancer. And then, when they got proven to be liars, they shifted. You know, so so now they own Fort Bragg. I mean, they 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 do the research for the for the lawyers. Whenever history needs to be entered into the courtroom. They're called history associates. And they're the ones who are doing most of the reports on the slavery records disclosure law that is required. One of them in particular was a postgraduate student at Emory University. And he wrote the damn report, excuse my language, for A.B. and AMRO, and LaFell Bank, the Dutch Bank, and J.P. Morgan. He did a speech in 2007 at the American History Association saying that their database, you know, as legal history, you know, public history, you know, different versions of history. It's another one I just forgot the name of it. But he said that that, their database, the Emory database, can be used for a number of different, you know, genealogical study, this study, that study, whatever. He peddled in the database. He got paid. He then lies and says an example is that he and the database helped the reparations movement in Chicago, 2006, 2007, with the database. He's a liar. 
He did not Not help the reparations movement, not as I understand it. He helped the people that the reparations movement are suing. He helped the successor entities of those companies that were like AB and Amro. LaSalle wasn't there at that time, but LaSalle was at that moment a subsidiary of AB and Amro. And he let them off the hook. He played some slick trick methodology madness. The way you ask the question and the way you research the question is the way you answer it. So if you want to if you want to tell a lie, if you want to you, you diminish the culpability of ABN's Amro's involvement in the transatlantic slave trade, the Dutch so-called slave trade, then you manipulate the you manipulate the methodology, and you pretend like you are unbiased. He fought me, so he won the wrongs gonna get a letter. And and in the slave trade database and Henry Louis Gates and the Queen of the Queen of the Netherlands, I mean, they can all get letters. You have the Spanish, you have the Portuguese, you have the British, you have the US and I'm late, and I'm lumping Britain and the US as one. You have France, you have the Netherlands, you have Denmark and the so-called Baltic countries, which includes Russia, Germany, you know. It's a total of 16, but they're lumped into six or seven. And then when you talk about those countries in Britain, first question is, did the ship register at the port in Britain? The information is in the database. It's just you got to scroll through 36,000 voyages. You know, you scroll through them by column or by row or by cell. And if you mess up, you got to go start all over again because I don't know statistical stuff. And by now, I don't even need it. I know them 36,000 voyages almost by heart. I haven't played with them so many, so many times over the last couple of years. So bottom line, you're talking about six or seven minimum open letters directed to Europe. But then European colonies and whatnot all over Africa and all over the Americas. So every country in the Americas, Every country goes up under one of them European countries. Many of the countries in the Caribbean were first of all settled by Columbus and the Spanish. So up to a certain year when the British took over or the French took over, I mean the British took over Jamaica. So Jamaica is in two letters the Spanish letter, and the British letter. They also got, Tobago, I think, was German. 
You understand what I'm saying? So the volumes were based upon the way the trade was organized in Europe and whatnot. But we include all of the countries in the Western Hemisphere that was a part of that colonialism or a part of the colonialism today. The British Empire has 56 countries worldwide. I don't forget how many of them are still part of the British Empire in the sense that they, you know, don't have independence or they have the illusion of independence, fake independence, yet the king or the queen is still British. So you have a prime minister in Jamaica and Charles III is the king of Jamaica, the head of state, you know, of Jamaica. Of of some of those colonies, 12 of them are talking about breaking independent of Britain, independent of Charles. Well, I'm going to help them. I'm going to help them if I can do that. So we will use, the, we will use, well, for the, for, for the church, we're using the papal bulls. The boys use the congressional, you know, the, the, the legislative history, congressional documents and bills and the state bills. He used that data, the laws. I'm using the shipping data that we get from the slave trade database. And with respect to the church, we are demanding that the church confirm the role it has played in the so-called slave trade, the trafficking, since at least 1307. Just confirm it. Here is the proof. Don't tell me that we don't know. We're using their records. We're using their data. We're using Ph.D. data. If you say this information is wrong, then here's the number to the Ph.D. person that wrote the dissertation. If you say this is wrong, here's the number to the Pope, because I didn't write the Bible. If it's wrong, it's because I didn't understand it. I don't know so yeah, but it's not my information. I didn't discover it. I didn't create it. And it's going to be well documented with footnotes, primary and secondary data. Bottom line, the shipping data is primary. They had to register, and that information with respect to registration is supposed to be in the National Archives. If it ain't in the National Archives, maybe the archives burned down. That's what Brazil is using as an excuse. But that's gone because the documents, the, the primary documents in Portugal, Brazil was under Portuguese colonialism. Yes, Brazil had documents, but it, it, it wasn't the headquarters. It was the branch office. 
and many of those documents were and should have been in the archives in Portugal. And now the archives in Portugal are being digitized. The documents are there. We simply want access to them. I don't have I don't have a budget other than what individuals who are members of the party or family or supporters they might get twenty five dollars here and there to buy a carton of ink. You know, I don't have no grant and truthfully I don't want none. Because I'm not gonna be controlled. I just turned down tens of thousands of dollars this month. I don't want the damn money. Because I'm not going to be controlled. They're not going to tell me what to write and how to write it. And I don't need their help to write it. You know what I'm saying? So bottom line, we'll do documents. And the documents will be published in books. And the books as part of a worldwide political education campaign will be distributed in every corner of the world as best we can and we need help. Because a kid sitting under a banana tree in the Congo playing with his his or her cell phone and the monkeys ain't got no money to buy no books. They ain't got no money to buy them books and frankly the people who got the money ain't my audience. Then I'm an audience. So it's counterproductive to attempt to sell a book to somebody who ain't going to read it, number one, and can't afford to buy it and whatnot. So we need help with that. We're going to build a massive campaign. Two aspects of that campaign, and I'll stop and we can move to some of the other points. One, we have just yesterday been, we submitted a proposal to do three or four presentations at the Association for the Study of African Life and History in Jacksonville, September 20th to the 24th. We submitted a proposal to do a 15-minute presentation, an 8- to 10-page paper called Irrevocable Proof that the trafficking in so-called trading and enslavement of African people from 1307 to 1888 was illegal. And we just explained to you what we're going to do. We're going to wipe the Spanish slave trade out using treaties and laws and variables from the slave shipping data, including registration and flag. Those are the two main ones that wipes Spain out. There are others and whatnot. So each one of those countries in Europe and and, and the colonial countries, they got laws that we can use, and they got shipping data that we can use. We're going to specialize on the shipping data. 
We're going to try to wipe as much of the 12.5 million people enslaved, allegedly enslaved. We going to prove that it was not legal. And that there were all kinds of laws and regulations, including the kitchen sink. We're going to try to wipe it out. Like we proved the 102 entities, not companies, but entities, including companies and banks and, and governments and the Catholic Church in, in Chicago. And we're going to do as many of these books and papers and whatnot as we can between now and September 20th. And then we're going to present that 8- to 10-page paper in writing and orally, oral presentation, in Jacksonville. If we're able to do that, we take, in my view, the movement forward. Because while today we are specifically fighting neocolonialism and the lingering aspects of colonialism and blah, 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 historically the movement also fought slavery and the slave trade and slave-like practices and conditions. It's no accident that the 1884 Berlin Congress Conference is four years before the abolition of the slave trade in Brazil. It's no accident. Many of those countries in Africa, Brazil was colonized from 1500. The early 1501, 1502 or something. Colonialism didn't start in 1884. Colonialism goes back to Rome and Greece. The economic mode of production has changed. You know, slavery, I mean, Karl Marx talked about it. Communalism and slavery and feudalism and capitalism, the four economic epics or, or whatever the word, eras or whatever the word he used, that has certainly changed. You know, they didn't have computers 2,000 years ago and whatnot. So, yes, that has changed. And some, some of the slick trick laws have changed. The shit they're doing against Trump it's the same stuff they did against me and Kwame. COINTELPRO, the formal project, may have changed. But counterintelligence, methodology, and techniques, the same stuff they're doing against Donald Trump. They're doing against us. They did against us. And the same stuff that Trump and his Republicans, the mega hat wearers, are doing in Congress and whatnot, they did to us. They did to us. I mean, I see it. I don't support either side. 
We win when white folks fight each other. I'm not anti-white, but I'm anti the oppressors. And the oppressors are no longer just white. I was against Bad Daly in 64. Marched with my, my mother's cousin noontime every Sunday in front of Daly's house. The whole summer of 64, I went out there with Earl. But I also, and Earl also fought Dawson, the African congressman. We said, dump Daly, dump Dawson. I can't sit up here today and say, dump Biden, and I do. And not also say, dump Kamala. Now, I can be accused of being anti-woman. I can be accused of being anti-black. I don't give a damn. Kamala is no good. She was equally incomplicit of sending 1,500 military and IRS and other agents to to surround the border to keep Spanish-speaking, and well, not just Spanish, but to keep people out of this country. This country don't belong to Kamala. How can she keep people out? She ain't no good. And I can go country by country, city by city, party by party, even some of the parties we worked with, we went to jail for. 30 and 40 years ago, not tonight. Because those organizations are no longer what they were. None of, none of us are. None of us are. We've aged. You know, we've gotten tired. Things have speeded up and passed us by. So the situation is not what it used to be. But just because you pretended to be revolutionary 40 years ago don't mean you're revolutionary tonight. And I'm sorry, I read the books. I know some of the language. I know some of the definitions. And I know when people are using the same words and don't mean the same thing. I know the con game. Because I've seen it too many times in the movement. Too many times. You don't even have to finish the sentence. You don't have to finish it. I remember the sentence. And there's a certain point when you get there's a certain point when you get to the sentence. You don't finish it, I already know the answer. Because I've heard it so many times before. What's the purpose of studying? If we don't know the answer. So that's the theoretical part. We're going to try to launch a campaign, a crusade worldwide. You know, we don't have to travel. We can use Blog Talk Radio. We can use Zoom. For me, Blog Talk Radio is easier because I'm not computer literate. 
and but all of these all of this technology, all this stuff, you know, we just find some young people, find some people my age but more computer literate and we work out a system where we can do it without interruption. We've had only one interruption tonight. I made only two, well, three mistakes tonight. I talked too long, number one, and I misplaced the telephone number twice. I got all these papers and books and stuff, every tabletop, including the bed. In my apartment right now, I got papers and books on it. And I just kept, I wrote the call-in number on a piece of paper. I was supposed to call in 10 to 8. I lost the damn paper, excuse my language. I didn't call in to 803 or 804. When I I went back online and I refound, you know, I, I got it. And then we got cut off and I had misplaced the number again. So somebody had to give it to me. So I made at least three mistakes tonight. Let me stop. How are we at, Walima? Oh, no, I didn't know I was still connected to you. I was going to intervene a little uh, earlier. I said I was going to intervene a little earlier. But I think... Uh, well, you should have. But anyway... I, I, I kind of think where to... we're at now is if you can kind of tell the listening you audience if they want to. Hello? You yes, yeah. the secretary, you, you have a station of 45 more minutes if you want to use it. Oh, I hear you. I hear you. I'm just trying to get through the uh, the information that we want. We agree to that. Yeah, I'm, the question is, I've been rambling and back and forth through a bunch of it, and I think I've answered a lot of those five questions. Yeah, you have. But I think there's but a... There's a... If, if it's something I haven't answered that you think needs to be answered, then let's roll with it. Yeah, and I think the most important of... thing... I think the most important thing now is if you can uh, spend some time talking about for those who might want to assist, support, help uh, you and the work that you're doing, uh, what it is they can do, and, and how did, how would you uh, how would you suggest that they uh, get involved with the work that you're doing? Well, that's that's a difficult question for me. Several people have offered help. Today, and in the discussion about what help they're offering, they want to change the focus of the research. They want to peddle, and let me be cold, they want to peddle their hustle. They want me to stop talking about the church and start talking about the businesses so they can get some reparations. So the question of help is a very cold question. Help do what? 
they first of all got to understand what I'm doing and my objective and how I'm doing it. And I've spent 20 years. Now, to the extent that they can help me, for example, I want to put one or two paragraphs on each of the 104 bulls. I don't want to print the entire bull. I, I, I got a basic outline. Three parts to each bull has three parts. One part which I tactically call background. The second part I call excerpt. I don't want to print the whole bull. I want to put some of the most egregious language and information to show and prove how and why this bull should be repudiated and revoked. And then I want to put references in terms of footnotes and bibliography, but without getting too much, you know, additional reading. Am I making sense? So bottom line is a background, it's an excerpt, and it's a kind of reference, notes, bibliography. Now, if people can just send me some of that rough boilerplate, then that's how they can help me, because then I don't have to do that tedious stuff. I can use, I'm using dissertations, I'm using other stuff to help do that. But that's that's what needs to be done with respect to the research. Raw data. So that I can quicker, quicker finish these half a dozen, six or seven open letters. If the people don't know the information, I don't have time to teach them. If they want to argue that they got a better methodology, they got a better approach, they got a better book, they go do it. Go do it. You know what I'm saying? They, they, they can yeah. help with my research or they can do their own research. In fact, it is better if they do their own research because that means we can come at the issue, come at the target from more different angles and different approach. Overwhelm them. Overwhelm the system. If, 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 if people got a legal case... Don't worry about no lawyer. We didn't have no lawyers in 1863. You know, I mean, it's good. We fought to create lawyers. You know, but ain't no lawyer going to tell me, no, they can't do my case, and then I don't do my own case. Right. So how would they, uh, how would folks contact you? Do you have a uh, contact information that they are able to Provide the assistance you're talking about. There, 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 are, there are two ways they can contact. One, the email. I don't have, I, I've been working on a website. I ain't done it because I don't want to spend time with the website that I could use doing research. 
you know, so I don't have a website, but I have an email. I'll, I'll spell it. First of all, it's called paroots02 at yahoo.com. It's spelled P like Panama, A like Africa, R like Rwanda, O orange, O orange, T Tom, S Sam, zero two at yahoo.com. They can email me at that place. So I'm encouraging people to do their own research. I mean, they they can do genealogical research, like my family discovered, you know, part of my family's history back to 1766. They did, for the most part, genealogical, ancestry.com type research. I'm researching this they were Huguenots, the slave masters. And there are Huguenot libraries and associations in all the major cities in the United States and in, in the world. One of the biggest Huguenot libraries is in uh, Charleston, South Carolina. And they got, maybe they ain't got nothing on my ancestor too much, although they do have probate, you know, when you die, you got to put your slaves in probate, just like every other piece of property. So there are all kind of probate files and whatnot down there in South Carolina. The, the public library in Charleston, South Carolina, they got some tremendous articles that they have published, and I'm going to contact them and get as much of the information as I can. So one is research, and yes, I need help. But if if the, if if the help deviates me from the direction that I'm going, I don't want it. I'm not gonna argue with people who, people who say they come to help. I don't want no slaves, but ain't nobody gonna come take me off my path. It ain't gonna happen. And why not? So that's one issue. You know, I you know I, I live very modest, very modest. You know, and what not? You know, and I'm in a situation where I got to be careful. I cannot raise money for myself, but for a not-for-profit project. You know, we we, we need ink. You know, we need ink. I bought some ink last night, came here at 9 o'clock this morning. The cartridge was finished by 12. Because I'm one of them ones who don't believe in paperless offices. You know, I got to feel it. I got to touch it. I got to read it. And it ain't convenient for me to read on computer or telephone. One reason the type is too damn small. So that's the main way. 
Okay. They can do research. They can, in, at some point, they can invite us into town, into country. You know, on the campus, on YouTube, on Blog Talk Radio, because at some point we got to do a mass educational campaign. We got to try to find a way to educate as many people as we can. We. We know we can't educate 1.5 billion, but that don't mean we won't try. You know what I'm saying? That don't mean we won't try. Can you you talk a little bit about? Can you talk a little bit about? Can I just do one more piece of help? Ultimately, these laws were allegedly created by popes and priests and presidents and kings and queens and legislatures. All they did is just put some nonsense on paper and call it a law. We cannot have any more illusions about laws. Why is something that Trump does not a law? And when Biden do the same or something worse, his is a law. How is the president? How is the pope? They're not infallible. They make mistakes. Many of them are corrupt. We see that. You know, on social media, on TV. I mean, it's confusion. So how can we be confused about law today? Stuff that is wrong, that doesn't make sense, why should we obey it? Once upon a time, you couldn't go to a white bathroom, sit in a white seat, or go, you know, or go to a white restaurant. That law was wrong. The laws were wrong. Yet they existed for hundreds of years, and we, for the most part, implemented them. And when we didn't implement them, we got killed. But we got fighting and fighting and fighting, and a moment in the struggle occurred when we changed those laws. We changed those laws. You know, ain't, ain't, ain't no president or no congressperson or they, they they might sign on the piece of paper but the ones before them signed the laws that we changed it's the mass struggle that changed that ultimately what we have to do is do a legislative campaign to pass a resolution to say the trafficking and enslavement of human beings was never legal. Not this should have always been shit, you know, no. They voted a document with 13 words, you know, I mean, the paragraph 13 and bottom line five words should have always been so. 
we need to force the city councils, the county legislatures, you know, the history departments, the churches, we need to force them to, number one, confirm God makes no slave in the the womb. The so-called Virginia Slave Code was borrowed from Barbados in 1661. One of the first laws the Virginia Code passed in 1662 was the parentage or the lineages of the child follows the mother. It comes from an old Roman part of so-called four titles of just enslavement that go all the way back to Rome. But it basically says that the mother pregnant and enslaved, the baby belongs to the slave master. Period. Because it takes the condition of the mother. Even if the father is white and free and British, the baby does not take the father's. It takes a matrilineal line. So they took matrilinealism and perverted it in 1662 in Virginia. In 1811, starting at least in 1811, every country, major country in Latin and Central and South America started a movement called the Free Womb, starting laws, starting with Chile in 1811. And that basically Spanish Catholic movement continued until you know, the abolition of the enslavement of children in Brazil in the 1870s or 1880s. In the U.S., that there's a man named Reverend John Fee who founded Berea, Kentucky and Berea College. The American Missionary Association in the 1840s paid him to do an anti-slavery manual. And he was part of the movement that set up seminaries, especially in the South. He, he, he came out of Ohio, Lane College and seminary and that whole crew, and he moved to Kentucky and he set up Berea College. And he wrote the manual to train a new generation in the 1840s and 50s of anti-slavery preachers, Protestants. And he copied the feet above the womb struggle in laws out of Central and South America, Spanish, and he created a Protestant version of it. He is the one who coined God makes no slaves in the womb. The school he set up was the first integrated school in the South during slavery and whatnot. It exists today. And that school created 
off the top of my head, I don't remember all the names, but it's a who who of pre- predominantly predominant women and men, including I think Carter G. Woodson came out of that. You know, and and, and some more. I'll just at this moment, my, my, my memory is gone. That's where we get that stuff. I mean that that slogan from. And he was financed the church, the school, and the churches he helped build more than once. My phone getting ready to go. It was financed by the American Missionary Association and the Methodists and other kind of churches. And those denominations today are backing the Indians. They have been financing the Indian movement for the last 40 years to revoke the bulls with respect to the Indians' issue. And the Indians ain't fighting about slavery. They're fighting about land. Because the myth is that the Catholic Church freed the Indians with Bishop Bartholomew Las Casas. Okay? I heard the first beep on this phone. Are you there? Hello? Yeah, yeah, Bob, we can hear you. I said I yes, heard the Bob, first beat, so it's going to you know, bug out in a okay. few. Maybe yeah, so Bob, you might want to go ahead and give a summary. Huh? Uh, so you might just want to go ahead and whatever closing comment summary you may have of uh, the last couple of hours, you've been able to uh, share a lot of information and whatnot. Well, what I can try to do is to call back using one of these other phones, if it's worth that. Uh, well, I you have an extension another 25 minutes, Bob, that you huh? can utilize if you want to utilize it. You have extended 25 more minutes you can utilize if you want to utilize it. That that depends on y'all. We got the time, Bob. The phone will go at any, at any point. So Wale will just tell me. I'll summarize until it drops off or I'll Try to use one of these other phones I got. They're not as stable as this one. Well, if, if you if you have uh, the need, I would say go ahead. You said you got 25 minutes. It's, it's really up to you. This is your that, program. Let me cut off this. Let me cut off of this one, and I'll call back on this cricket phone. Okay. Well, I'll call right back. Us, while we take I'll a station right break, this. While we take a station break, this is Brother Africa or Africa Moves. You can catch this radio program every Sunday evening from 7 to 9 p.m. And if you'd like to view this show or hear other shows that took place during this year, African Liberation Day, we encourage all our viewers and listeners to go to the website of www.a-aprp.cc. You have set up a process where you can view and listen to all of the activities that took place this year for African Liberation Day. So let's take a quick station break and listen to some more sounds of sweet liberation, and we'll be back shortly where Brother Bob and Brother Waterman will do their final conclusion for today's program. This is Africa on the Moon. 
Welcome back to Africa the Moon. I believe we have Bob back. Bob, can you hear us? Three eight six seven. Bob Brown, can, can you, you hear, hear us? Me? Yes, we can. We're back on, and you can continue sharing your information on the thing. God make no slaves in the room. Brother Walmu, I turn the mic back over to you. Yes, Brother Walmu. Yeah, just go ahead, Bob. I think we're at a point where just uh, just summarizing what we kind of got through this uh, over the last couple of hours and your research and your work, uh, and then we'll go ahead and uh, and close out. Well, I think that coma, and I repeat it, is correct. Theory and practice. True resolution. It's about doing and practice. Doing without practice is instinct. Practice without thought is blind. The relationships are made by people who think as folks of action and act as people of thought. I know everybody is not revolutionary. They want to be I want to take the risk and want to say, I understand that. Some people consider themselves to be radical. Some consider themselves to be reformers. Some are outright reactionary and proud of it. It's from the spirit. And Kuma talks about a plenum of forces and tensions. This is the most confusing period and the most corrupting inside of the movement that I have seen since the 1960s. And I've seen some stuff. I've seen some stuff that you can believe. Well, this this preoccupation with money. I have not seen this madness since warm poverty. And Johnson was throwing out all kind of money, just throwing money, just buying the movement, buying leadership, just buying corruption. The gangsters just pouring money, drugs and stuff in together in the late 1960s. And the so-called poverty program, and we coined a phrase called poverty tent. Various forces who were pimping the movement. Pimping the movement just to get titles, to get, I mean, you can't, you can't imagine the corruption. And one day I write about some of it. It's called my autobiography. I document Because if I can document 500 years ago, what make anybody think I can document today? Or 50 years ago. So... We need clarity. We need clarity and we need honesty in the movement. And that's probably the best contribution that anybody can make. Be as honest, as correct as possible. And I don't confuse lies with so-called humility. I'm not confused that you're not supposed to tell the truth because you might hurt somebody's feelings. 
you know, we, we don't need to hurt people's feelings, but we don't need to lie either. And we don't need to perpetuate this confusion. That's no more on it. We got to fight neocolonialism. Neocolonialism is not just in Africa. It's also in the United States. The overwhelming majority of the elected officials in this country are neocolonial. The overwhelming majority of the so-called leadership in this country, including in the movement, is neocolonial. As a bare minimum, we can't join them. We can We should not join them. We should not. We should not compete with them. We should. We should not do what they do. If in if worst case scenario, we just need to be isolated. I don't need to go to no meeting and hear that madness. I'm getting old. I'm, you know, whatever. So I'm backing off of meetings. I know that the revolution needs meetings. I know organizations need meetings. I understand that. But you can't believe the phone calls I've gotten today. The people asking me to help them. I might say, yes, I'll help them because we're so-called friends. But how can they ask me to do something they know damn well that I don't do or I don't want to do? Tell me, man, you don't want no money. Give me yours. Come on, what is this? What is this? So that's it. This project, and I repeat it, is very clear. It, 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 it is difficult to do. It is difficult to do, but it's not impossible. The biggest work right now is research. People can do their own research to be clearer on what they're fighting against and what they're fighting for. If people know anything about paper bowls, and if people know anything, you know, about you know, shipping data to ship. I want shipping data. I don't need data about treaties. I got that. You know, I, I want registration issues. I want flags. You know, I I I want some of those 264 variables. And you can go on the website in the Voyages database at in, uh, it's now at Rice University. And you can look on it. They got a code book. Yeah. And they'll tell you what all the variables are and, and how to use the database. So if, if they want to help us, go on there and learn how to use that database. Pick a city, pick pick a country, pick a ship. You know, you ain't got to do all thirty six thousand. You, know, you, you you can pick those ships in that port. It's nine hundred and fifty ports, almost a hundred countries. Sixteen and twenty six is what fifty two, and and I think there's forty or fifty countries in the Western Hemisphere. It's certainly more than fifty. So they can do some research. 
if they want to look at the economic aspect of it, if they want to look at the reparations aspect of it, go right ahead. You ain't got to wait for no house rule bill to be passed. You ain't got to wait for John um, for Biden or Kamala to do the research for you or pick the person who's going to do the research. Ain't no slave master going to pick no good researchers because they don't want to tell the truth. <laughs> and that, but you can do it. Don't tell them the data don't exist. They're finding new data every day. There are at least 40,000 people who teach Africa, Africa, who teach on the college campuses in the United States, which means they got at least masters and PhDs, whatever that means. Many of them have gotten scholarships, have gotten grades, have gotten degrees, also some version of African life and history. They, they may be in different professions and different academic fields and uh, all. They write a dissertation to make some money. They write a dissertation to get a PhD. They write a damn dissertation about slaves in the country. If you don't get a, if you don't get a grant, that's okay. You can do it for free. Generations before you got PhDs, got this, got that, and they ain't got as money. We have access to these schools. We open this. We open these schools up. Martin Luther King didn't integrate no colleges. Elijah Muhammad didn't integrate no college. Martin Luther King graduated, and from that moment on, he had churches he could go to. Any city in the world he wanted to visit, he had at least one church he would let him in. There were 5,000 churches affiliated with SEOC. I know them. I don't know the, the preachers and the membership, but I've seen the rest. I don't have the list of 5,000 today, but I know how to do it. There are 40,000 people who have some kind of African studies, African-American studies, you know, I'm a good list. Why can't they do anything? Get all these lawyers. They're making big money. Well, they are making so many riches in this country. I know many of them. Because these 15,000, 50,000, 100 year kids, and you got to pay it before they sign on to your case. Because they don't take no IOUs. They want to cash your fuck. 
And when they lose the damn case and you go to jail, they don't do no post-conviction remedy. They drop you. And even the ones who help do the appeals and help do the problems while you're incarcerated, some of that broad category is called post-conviction remedy. What are you talking about? One of my cellmates was one of Mr. Scarfo's mob up in Philadelphia. And I helped him get out of jail six months earlier by just by doing research in the, in the, in the library, jailhouse research, wrote a cop out and got him six months off early. And he returned the favor by sending me a post-conviction remedy lawyer. We are 10 minutes remaining. Huh? We are 10 minutes remaining. No, I ain't going to do no, no. I ain't going to do I'm just telling you the story. I'm just saying that's the legal field and lawyers lawyers need to do that. So, I'm not doing that. Helping my Leah, but helping my you know, some of them are doing different aspects of it. But I'm just using that as an example. This woman did this, and she walked in the door. I never met her. She did it as a favor because I had done something to help one of her people. And she walked in the door, and she said, Is Bobby Brown here? And I raised my hand, and she said, Pack your bags, baby, you out here. It's hard to happen. It's hard to happen. It's hard to do that. Because they were found some technicality, some regulation that I didn't do, and therefore, didn't have no time. He was a roommate for 11 months, so I had no choice but to be that, and he got along very well. He knew I was a revolutionary, and I knew he was a gangster. And I didn't want to go that way. And I didn't. But you got lawyers today. One lawyer told me he would have handled my lawsuit if I gave him 30% of my victory. How do you, how you ask for billions of dollars in reparations? And the land will get 30%. You can see all this money that these foundations and these corporations are putting up for Mali Kane to tend to be the leader and for making enough noise to get a tech. And when they get the tech, you don't see them in the room no more. Now, there are some good lawyers who have spent decades doing good work, and I'm not knocking them. But you don't want to start me naming the ones I am knocking. Me. So I'm just asking people to 
This is no work. Don't let nobody tell you the records do not exist. That is not true. Now, all I want to say, they went in this one place. The records in Brazil were also in Portugal. Not all of them. And the land owner. If you can't find the information here, go to Harvard Library. First, going back straight to reveal the record. Ideally, this occasion costs $130. For a copy of that dissertation. But that dissertation is a wealth of information about the Catholic Church's involvement in the so called transatlantic slave trade of Africa. To do some research, educate some people for free. Poor people. Not just middle class people with, I mean, you educate them too, because they don't necessarily, just because they got a degree, don't mean they know nothing. Certainly nothing outside of their area of specialty. Five minutes remaining. Huh? We have five minutes remaining before we cut up okay, so uh, those who listen to the program. And, and, and if People got some pennies. They can make a donation. And it's very simple. It's close up. It's T.A. Roots, 1948. Dollar sign. T. like Paul, A. like Africa, R. Robert, O. Orange, O. Orange, T. Tom, S. Sam, 02, and then the number 1948. So... They can just make a small donation, and, and you know, we get better organized. We'll keep them informed in the report, especially over the summer about what we're trying to do. We'll make sure they get copies of the information we produce. We get invitations to join different programs, Zoom, YouTube through the party's website, Blog Talk Radio through Leaves, and there might be other interviews not this long and not this monosyllable, you know, with me being more disciplined and talking less, you know. But I think that if we succeed to September, it's going to be a new ballgame. I want to change the narrative, the historical narrative, the legal narrative, this stuff that slavery and the slaves say should have been illegal. No, they were illegal. And even at many point where they were declared legal, there were all kinds of laws that were used and should have been used to disqualify them. That's my conclusion. One All right, well, Bob, we'll 
Yeah, we thank you on behalf of the all African people represent party GC and no time is tight. So we don't have anything really to add. And so we'll turn it over to, uh, to Lee and Africa on the move African awareness to, uh, uh, close out the program. And we just would like to thank the APRPGC as well as Brother Bob Brim and Pierre Roos for being allowing us to be a participant of this year African Liberation Day, Palestine Day, and particularly this program. We'd like to remind you that you can hear this radio station every Sunday evening at 7 p.m. Eastern Time. So spread the word. If you have any comments or views and you'd like to reach out directly to us, you can do that by email, by emailing us at AfricaOnTheMove2 at gmail.com. So until next year, we'd like to encourage you to check out the website where you can view all of the programs that have taken place under the AAPRPGC by visiting their website, which is www.a-aprp-gc.org. As well as if you want to get in contact with Brother Barbara and P.A. Roots, this email contact is paroots02 at yahoo.com. So until this Sunday on the 4th of January, you describe to go forward, back with Neville, and we'll see you next year for African Liberation Day. This has been Africa on the Moon.
Your great 